Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. Now, before we begin today's episode, I want to quickly apologize for a technical error that we had on the last episode featuring Professor Donald Downs. When uploading that episode, we mistakenly uploaded a separate audio file from our new Free Speech Out Loud podcast series, which features audio recordings of court opinions from famous Supreme Court cases. In this situation, we inadvertently uploaded regular, so to speak, guest Bob Corn Revere's reading of the case Cohen v. California. Now, while I encourage you all to check out Free Speech Out Loud and subscribe, we won't be carrying its content here on So To Speak. After listeners wrote in about the area, era, error, excuse me, we quickly fixed it, and you should now find the Donald Downs interview in your podcast feed. Again, apologize for the error. So for today's show, we are discussing one of the hottest free speech cases on the Supreme Court's docket this term. The case is Mahanoy Area School District versus BL which will be argued in front of the court next Wednesday, April 28th. The case involves Brandy Levy, a student and cheerleader at Mahanoy Area High School in Pennsylvania. Brandy was frustrated with her school, to say the least, uh, (laughs) including not making varsity cheerleading team. So one Saturday, she decided to vent her frustrations on Snapchat and took a photo of herself and her friend flipping off the camera with the caption, fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything. The snap was visible to her 250 or so friends, some of whom were fellow students and cheerleaders. Now, the snap made its way to the cheerleading coaches, who were not happy with it, and they decided Brandy's snap violated team rules and school rules and kicked her off the junior varsity cheerleading team. So Brandy sued, and the federal district and appellate courts agreed with her claim that the suspension violated her First Amendment rights. The school then petitioned the Supreme Court to hear the case, and that's where we are today. Now, joining us to discuss the case and why it matters are Frank Lamonti and Lindsey Rank. Frank is the director of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. Previously, he was the executive director of the Student Press Law Center in Washington, D.C. And Frank recently published an essay for Slate entitled, The Future of Student Free Speech Comes Down to a Foul-Mouthed Cheerleader. Now, Frank, I suspect you didn't write that headline, but even if you did, it's a good one. Uh, Also joining us again is uh, Lindsey Rank who is a colleague of mine at FIRE. This is actually her first time on the show. She is a program officer in our Individual Rights Defense Program and has been following this case closely. Frank, Lindsay, welcome onto the show. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for having me. Frank, let's start with you. What is the question that the Supreme Court is seeking to answer in this case? Well, interesting you say that because there's about three dozen briefs at the Supreme Court who all present the case in about three dozen different ways. But I think the simplest way to explain it is Uh, The school district is asking the Supreme Court to essentially decide that all student speech, no matter when and where it occurs, is now to be regarded as on-campus speech because of its ability to reach and affect the school, and therefore it's now all equally subject to the same degree of school punitive authority, no matter when and where it takes place. Lindsay, has the school or has the Supreme Court addressed these sorts of questions before? The Supreme Court has never decided 
squarely where the the jurisdiction of a school ends when it comes to to student speech issues. So we've we've seen a lot of cases where the Supreme Court has addressed student speech on campus or at um, at campus uh, campus endorsed activities off campus, if that makes sense, school sponsored activities. But never have we seen the court take up a case where a student is saying the F-bomb at a shopping mall, which is what happened in this case. Was the bong hits for Jesus case, it would that, that kind of be a parallel here? It was an off-campus you know, event, although was, I, don't, I'm not, I don't recall if it was a school-sponsored event or not. Frank, do you remember the facts of that case and how might it bear on this one? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of school attorneys would like to use the Morse versus Frederick case as a license to get into students off campus lives. But if you really read the opinion, it's a very narrowly drafted opinion. Just like you said, Nico, this is the case where the student at the Juneau Alaska High School holds up a banner that says bong hits for Jesus with some classmates and he gets suspended from school for doing it. And the kind of jurisdictional fudge that the Supreme Court uh, allowed itself in order to resolve that case was to say, well, he was appearing at an event where the school had given students a day off from school and encouraged them to all gather in the same place across from the school building to cheer on the Olympic torch while it was being run through town. For that reason, the court says, this was the equivalent of field trip. It was a school sanctioned event. And that's the nomenclature they used that this is in school speech, says the Supreme Court, by virtue of the fact that it takes place at a school sanctioned event. Now, it would be a mighty stretch indeed to stretch the Morse reasoning into, just as Lindsay is saying, this student in the Mahanoy case is at a convenience store with her friend on a Saturday afternoon. None of the indicia of school sponsorship or school sanctioning is indicative in this case. And so I think it would be quite a strain of the Morse principle to try to fit this under the ambit of quote unquote school speech. So the Tinker case in the 1960s, and perhaps we can talk a little bit about that, held that students do have First Amendment rights, at least some um, in the high school context. But ever since then, the Supreme Court has narrowed their interpretation of that case in four or five subsequent cases. And so for First Amendment free speech advocates like ourselves, this is a big one. This is an opportunity for the court to really reaffirm Tinker and uh, address this question of off-campus speech. Lindsay, if you could talk a little bit about what the Supreme Court has done since the late 60s when the Tinker case made its way there and and how that's challenged not just high school speech rights, but also the speech rights of college students who have not been implicated in many of these cases, but whose uh, you know colleges, general counsels, use these cases to justify censorship in college as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you're, you're totally right that Although most of this precedent comes from the K-12 context at FIRE, where we advocate for the rights of college students, we all the time are seeing college administrators trying to apply these these cases to the college and university context. Um, So some of those precedents have been things like that lewd speech isn't isn't allowed in the K-12 context, that if if you're a student at school and you say sexually suggestive things, that you can get in trouble for that. Um, There's also, of course, the Hazelwood case that talks about student media, which both Frank and I work with a lot, um, where K-12 student media uh, rights were 
were very much diminished by this idea that if the school's imprimatur, the school's name is connected to the student media, that college administrators then have more rights to determine what that content of that, that student media might be. Um, and then, of course, the Bong Hits for Jesus case, you know, where, where they extended it to this sort of field trip-esque type um, student activity and said that you know, his speech was inappropriate for, for young minds. So there's a lot of this, uh, of, of the Supreme Court sort of considering what is appropriate for young people in sort of the school context where the school is acting in loco parentis or in, in the stead of parents. Um, and unfortunately, like I said, we see administrators all the time taking that and applying it to the university setting where really, you know, college students are adults administrators really shouldn't be trying to act in loco parentis because we're talking about adults who don't don't need or theoretically don't need, you know, that supervision, at least from a legal perspective. Frank, let's revisit the Tinker case a little bit. I mean, that's the foundational case here. It involved Mary Beth Tinker, who I know you've worked with quite a bit in recent years on the Tinker Tour and, and much else. She and her brother wore uh, black armbands to kind of mourn the uh, losses of lives in the Vietnam War and uh, were punished by their school in, in Des Moines, Iowa for doing so. And this, they took their case all the way up to the Supreme Court, which held that uh, they, you know, there are First Amendment rights. Students do have free speech rights to a certain extent uh, in the high school context, but although schools do have uh, more flexibility and ability when the, those rights uh, result in a substantial disruption. Uh, substantial disruption is a relative term, uh, uh, what one might consider a substantial disruption and none might not, uh, another might not. And in the years subsequent, uh, high school districts and the Supreme Court have driven a huge truck through that hole. Can you talk a little bit about that and then talk about its implication in this case when, uh, when we live in a digital environment, uh, especially now with COVID? Uh, and your campuses are often in your living room. Uh, how, how should we think about substantial disruption in that way? And do students have <laughs> any private life, I guess I should say, to express themselves? Or is everything uh, implicating your 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Uh, education Monday through Friday? Yeah, so let's rewind to 1969 and the Tinker case for a second. If you read that opinion by Justice Fortas, and this was kind of the, the last hurrah of that court, of the Warren court, uh, right after that opinion, both Warren and Fortas leave the Supreme Court and you have this kind of fruit basket turnover where the court becomes much more deferential to authority figures and in particular to school authority figures after 1969. But if you read the Tinker opinion, it lays out firmly that there are boundaries that school authorities cannot and should not cross, that students are persons under our constitution, that just speculating that speech might cause other people to have hard feelings or might cause a, an animated exchange of opinions. The court not only says that's okay, they actually embrace it. They say this, this is the source of our national strength, that we are supposed to engage in spirited disagreements and differences of opinion. And in fact, that's not a distraction from education. It's arguably the whole point of education. So th this, this opinion is really animated by kind of a, a notion of schools as, as a participatory place of learning, a place where you learn 
by using your voice. And ever since that time, just as Lindsay explained, the philosophy and the approach of the court has been, let's clear these annoying penny ante school cases off of our dockets and we'll defer almost almost with a blank check of authority to people in schools. And so this idea of a substantial and material disruption that was recognized in Tinker, which requires, the court told us, something more than just the mere apprehension that something bad might happen. It requires proof of facts on the ground that something bad imminently will happen. This has been defined down by the subsequent lower courts to mean almost anything that distracts administrators from doing their jobs and and an especially bad iteration of this. um, I think probably the low watermark in the appellate courts, the uh, Lauren, the, the Avery Doniger case, out of the Second Circuit, a student who is a student government official and uh, operates a blog on the side, uses her her blog to encourage people to call and email the school to help her overturn a school policy decision. And in doing so, she uses a moderately coarse word, not the F-bomb, to refer to school administrators. And by virtue of having used the moderately coarse term and having encouraged people to call and email the school, the Second Circuit decides in the Doniger case that she's lost the protection of the First Amendment and she's committed a punishable offense. And, and I think ominously for this case, one of the uh, tangents that the, that the court unhelpfully goes down is the idea that she only, quote unquote, only lost the benefit of participating in an extracurricular activity that is a leadership position at the school. And therefore, it wasn't really very, very much punishment at all. And we can have a a long conversation about the fact that the First Amendment is not supposed to be penalty sensitive, and it's not in the adult world. But there's every reason to be fearful that when you have a case like this, that's got the complication of the extracurricular setting, uh, and the student was forced to sign a waiver of First Amendment rights, we should also talk about that it, it just has all sorts of landmines uh, uh, that the court, I, I think, honestly, doctrinally, the Mahanoi case is a very easy case. Uh, doc- doctrinally, there is no way for the school to win and the student to lose if anything approaching recognizable First Amendment principles are applied. But as we saw with the Morse case, there are times when school when the Supreme Court is tempted to say, let's clear the docket of cases that we think are insignificant and let's create new workarounds to enable schools to wield a freer hand of punitive authority. Yeah, let's talk a little bit, uh, Frank and Lindsay, about the extracurricular uh, component of this, because I think that is a complicating factor, as you spoke to that Second Circuit case. Often the cases that we look at or that the Supreme Court is considered in the high school context involve school suspensions, you know, or expulsions, um, I think mostly suspensions. Um, they haven't involved extracurricular activities uh, so much. And when I think of extracurricular activities as a former high school and college athlete, you know, the, the coaches are often responsible for uh, maintaining team morale, uh, disciplining people who, you know, are detrimental to the team. You know, in this case, it wasn't a practice, it wasn't a game, but it was discussing the team uh, and she was a member of the team. So how, how do we think about that? I mean, what do you, are there certain privileges that come with extracurricular activities that aren't the same sort of rights that we think of the right to get an education from the government. What, what, what are the, what is the court going to have to grapple here? Frank or Lindsay, you guys can go. All right, I'll start. <laughs> you, you, you said the P word, you said the privilege word. Uh, and so that's a trigger word for me uh, because in the land of the first amendment, 
that is a meaningless distinction. Um, the Supreme Court has said for many decades that the government can neither take away a right or an entitlement nor a privilege from you if the intention is to punish you for the content of your speech or to deter you from speaking in the future. And people understand this very, very well in the adult world. In the column that you referenced for Slate, I gave the example of if you're a blogger who vituperately criticizes the Department of Motor Vehicles, just call them out on your blog. This is an incompetent, mismanaged agency and everybody there should be fired. And then the next day you show up at the DMV to get your driver's license. They can't pull you out of the line and say, we disapprove of your speech and driving is a privilege. And therefore we've decided that to punish you for your anti-DMV speech, you will no longer enjoy the privilege of a driver's license, right? A hundred out of a hundred federal judges will get that case right. A hundred out of a hundred federal judges will recognize that there is no meaningful distinction between a governmentally extended benefit versus a governmentally extended privilege. And so that ought not to be, ought not to be a deciding factor in the Mahanoy case. There's every reason to fear based on the precedent of the Dodger case, which did involve extracurricular participation and which, um, which by the way, Justice Sotomayor sat during her time on the second circuit, that that may be a distracting factor. But the reality is that if the government takes anything at all away from you, imposes any kind of a disability on you for the message that you're you're voicing, that's enough to trigger the First Amendment. Um, and there's no materiality or significance test here. And again, people get this right away in the off-campus world. You know, Nika, if you're walking down the street and a cop sees you wearing the, the fire emblem on your shirt and, and stops you and says, I don't like that emblem on your shirt, buddy. Here's a $5 free speech ticket. I'm issuing you a $5 free speech ticket. Nobody thinks that the federal court would say, oh, just suck it up and pay it, buddy. It's five bucks, right? A hundred out of a hundred federal judges get that right. They say that there is no materiality requirement. And of course, that's an unconstitutional ticket. And participating in high school cheerleading or sports is worth a lot more than five bucks. Well, and I think especially if you consider the population that we're talking about here, right? So for a First Amendment case, the question is, would a reasonable person in that population, you know, be deterred from exercising their free speech rights in the future. So here we're talking about a 14-year-old kid. Would a, another 14-year-old kid look at this case and go, oh, crap, I shouldn't complain about my school because I might, you know, lose X, Y, Z. And then and then a chilling effect takes place. That, that kid won't, you know, won't complain, won't speak up, won't, you know, say the things that they otherwise would have said, a First Amendment violation has occurred. That's a chilling effect that is that is barred by the First Amendment. So I think, especially when we're talking about, you know, teenagers who I, are going to be scared away by the idea of the big bad administration, um, you know, punishing them by taking them off their cheer team or kicking them out of choir or whatever it happens to be, I, I definitely think uh, Frank is right here that uh, it, there's been a clear First Amendment violation in this case. The only other point I would add to that is, you know, once the Supreme Court declares some piece of First Amendment real estate to no longer be constitutionally protected, then subsequent courts are not going to make penalty-sensitive or punishment-sensitive decisions. And we've seen that with a case like the Doniger case. Even though the Doniger case was based on the relative leniency of the punishment, it has been relied upon and cited by subsequent courts 
including the Fifth Circuit in the Taylor Bell case, to be validation for expelling people from school as well. And so once you decide that a particular category of speech is constitutionally unprotected against a minor disciplinary sanction, then you better be prepared for it to be grounds for suspension or expulsion too. And if you're not prepared for Brandy Levy to be expelled from high school for venting on Snapchat, then you can't vote in favor of the school district here. Now, what if Brandy had said this during practice? What if at, after the coach gave her the workout for the day, she said, fuck cheer and fuck this workout? Would the coach have any recourse in that case? I mean, I think if it's directed at the coach, for sure, right? I mean, at that point, you arguably have crossed the line of substantial disruption. I don't think anybody would make a First Amendment argument. You know, let's take it outside the athletic setting. I don't think anybody would make a First Amendment argument that there is a right, a, a constitutionally protected right to direct profanity at an educator on school grounds during school time. I think that's a non-starter. And so surely, right, if she directs that speech at the coach, that's that's one thing. But, you know, what makes this so interesting, too, is the complicating factor of social media. We should talk a little bit more about that down the road, too. But, you know, I think, to be honest, if after practice, Brandy Levy goes with three of her friends to McDonald's and she says the exact same thing at the McDonald's table. And one of the friends then tattles to the coach afterward and said, you know what Brandy said at the McDonald's table? She said, fuck school and fuck cheerleading. I think nothing happens to Brandy Levy. I think most uh, uh, educators say, well, you know, I'm not the McDonald's police. Uh, uh, this is not my job. Why are you bringing this to me? But it is that unique context of social media that people in authority, whether it is employers or school disciplinarians, feel like they absolutely have to. They're duty bound to impose punishment for this speech because social media is so big, scary and powerful that different rules apply. And, and that's going to be the temptation that we're going to have to be relying on the justices to resist here, to see this as nothing more than a case about Snapchat and not what it really is, which is a case about all off-campus speech. Do we think that, Lindsay, do we think that there is some off-campus speech that could create a substantial disruption on campus? I mean, I think that that can be a complicated question, but I don't think we have to answer that question here. You know, if, if, if we're talking about someone saying, I'm going to bring a gun and shoot up the school tomorrow, like that's a different conversation that we're going to have to have separately. But we don't even have to get there. The court doesn't even have to get there in this case, because all she said is fuck the school. Like there, there's no, there's no reasonable disrupt. There's no reasonable fear of disruption to the school environment because she says fuck the school. There's no reasonable fear of violence taking place. None of that. There's, this isn't harassing anyone. Um, so this is just core protected speech. Um, so, I mean, maybe there's a conversation that we they, we would have to have. And if you look at uh, Fire's amicus brief in this case, we talk about that a little bit, that that's sort of a separate question. But it's just not a question that we even have to be worrying about at this point in this case. I would add two things to that. Thing number one, obviously, there's no First Amendment objection to punishing a student for speech that would be constitutionally unprotected speech if an adult said it in the adult world. And so there's a, a an array of 
danger, dangerous speech like true threats, like incitement to violence, like harassment that is already recognized as being unprotected by the First Amendment and subject to government punitive action when adults say it in the adult world. And so one of the kind of canards that we have to joust against in this case is the idea that somehow by ruling in favor of the speaker and against the school, you're depriving the school of the ability to respond to any and all off-campus speech. That's not what the decision below at the Third Circuit said, and it's not what the court is being asked to decide here. So that's thing number one. Um, and, and, and thing number two, I, I, you know, I, I also think that um, there, there's a risk here that you know, if you look at the briefing that was done below, uh, including by the Solicitor General, um, every single brief tries to bring it back to bullying, 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 bullying. But I was going to ask you about Lindsay's that. Point, to echo Lindsay's point, this is not a case about bullying. This is a school asking for the authority to punish non-bullying speech so that they can get at bullying. And my analogy would be, right, this would be like the police asking to be able to pull you over and ticket you for going 55 miles an hour in a 60 zone so that you don't get close to speeding. I, they're, they're, they're trying to punish speech preemptively that might one day approach bullying so that they can stop bullying. And the First Amendment just doesn't allow that. It doesn't give you this zone of kind of overcompensation where you get to punish harmless speech just to make sure that no harmful speech gets through. The First Amendment always defaults the other way, that every once in a while, we have to let some quote unquote bad speech get through the net to make sure that all of the protected speech gets heard. And that's why the tinker the tinker standard is substantial disruption and not apprehension or fear of some small disruption. It's substantial disruption that's known that you have evidence for, um, because because we have to have that breathing space for for speech that maybe is caustic or frustrating to administrators, but is really at the core of First Amendment protected speech. And I'd also like to point out that when it comes to things like true threats, harassment incitement to violence, we already have structures in place to deal with that kind of speech. We don't even, I mean, we don't need to get to this question on this case, but even if we did, you don't necessarily need high school administrators dealing with that because we already have structures in place in the adult world. You know, we have law enforcement that deals with it when someone, you know, gives you a call and says, I'm going to come over and kill you right now. That's, That's already those structures are already in place because the First Amendment has long recognized certain categories of unprotected speech. But this case just doesn't even come close to any of those categories. Yeah, the, the cyberbullying question is interesting. You know, I, you could you can consider a situation where a student is being bullied, however you want to define it, off campus by someone, but that someone never says anything or never even sees them on campus. And when I talk campus, I'm talking about in the high school context here. So this gets into the question that the jurisdictional question, if the school wanted to go after the student for its treatment of this other student off campus, do we, from a first amendment perspective, would that be okay? Or, or do we think that there needs to be a scope of off campus life that isn't under the purview of the school, but as Lindsay says, maybe should be under the purview of separate laws for enforcement that has jurisdiction there. I just, I'm just very wary of the, how schools are not allowing anyone to have any sort of personal life these days, even, even when doing so um, might allow bullying to take place if it's not properly addressed by parents or law enforcement. I mean, I think you have to 
parse out this very broad category of what's often referred to as bullying speech into about three or four different subcategories, each of which has an appropriate response to it. We talked about the law of harassment. And so once something is sufficiently severe and pervasive to constitute harassment, then it loses its First Amendment protection. So a student who was punished for that act would have no grounds to object under the First Amendment. And that's true now under current law. Um, and so let's, let's say the student uses their smartphone off campus to bombard another student with text messages in the middle of the night saying, kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself over and over again in the middle of the night, that crosses the line of what the law would recognize as harassment, even in the adult off-campus world. And Lindsay's right. There's a policy argument about whether the school should police that or not. But in any event, there's certainly no First Amendment barrier to doing that because that's not First Amendment protected speech if you or I do it. Um, so that's one subcategory of speech. But then I think, you know, kind of the, the, the teasing kind of speech that might one day arise to the level of bullying speech, but that's just sort of the, the interplay between the social interplay between teenagers that has always happened even before anybody had smartphones or social media is often much more productively dealt with by the conversation or the parental phone call you know and this case Mahanoy is so emblematic of that you know again the student didn't target any other student for any type of, of harassment here it was about her frustration with the school and the First Amendment has always protected our ability to vent our dissatisfaction with government agencies. And so I, I, all that had to happen at most, right, if, if in fact, let's take the school at their word, that this caused other people at the cheerleading team to, to experience some dissension within the ranks. It caused some discord within the cheerleading team. I'm not sure I buy that, but let, let's take them at their word. That seems like the kind of thing that educators deal with all the time by way of a conversation. You know, at most, the coach picks up the phone. She contacts the student. She says, you know, you really hurt my feelings with that. Uh, I work really hard at this job and I tried my best to select the best people for the squad. And if you've got a problem with how people are selected, come on in and let's talk about it. And oh, by the way, as an educator, I'm really concerned for your well-being. Um, you sound like you're really frustrated and unhappy with your life and with school. You know, I'm not really sure that in this situation that the bullying concern is on the right side of this case. The bullying concern may be on the side of Brandy Levy here. Brandy Levy is the person who seemed to be experiencing some degree of, of stressors in her life that made her uncomfortable and unhappy coming to school. And the idea that we're going to default immediately to punishing her seems like it's actually counterproductive to resolving bullying. Yeah, I, I definitely think a, another risk to this case, if the Supreme Court approaches it wrongheadedly, if the if the Supreme Court does decide that that schools have this much broader jurisdiction, is you end up with schools stepping on the toes of parents, right? So on campus, schools are supposed to act in in loco parentis, which is, again, in the place of parents, because the parents aren't there on campus with their students. But when you get to off-campus behavior, that's really the, the province of parents to deal with what their kids should and shouldn't be doing. So at a certain point, you also have to consider, you know, what did Brandy Levy's parents think? And I, I've seen a couple interviews with them, and I think they said, yeah, she, you know, she probably shouldn't have used that language, and we talked to her about it. But that doesn't mean she should have experienced this uh, this discipline at school. And I think that's right, right? Like the parents should be able to say, hey, Brandy, 
maybe don't use the F word on social media without the school coming in and saying, you can't, you can't cheer this year, or you can't be on choir, you can't be in the school play anymore. You know, the one, the overlay of social media here too is so important and it can't be ignored. And it's one, I think, foundational argument for why we should be wary of giving schools the same degree of regulatory authority over Brandy Levy's speech that they would have if she said the same thing in the classroom. And that is because social media is so uniquely susceptible to contextual and cultural misunderstandings. You know, if you look at the the horror story, the nightmare case is the Justin Carter case out of Texas, where a kid who is on Facebook chatting with some of his buddy gamer buddies about the shooter game that they're playing gets arrested by the police for threat speech because somebody who's not in on the backstory sees a copy of the chat and mistakes this gamer for a would-be school shooter. And he spends four months chilling in jail until he can raise the bond to get out, winds up with a felony threat speech case hanging over his head for many years until he finally gets depleted out. Social media speech is so often context specific. It requires you to be in on the backstory. People speak ironically. They speak jokingly. They quote movie lines and lines out of rap songs. And that kind of speech, you have to tread especially careful with the use of governmental punitive authority. Yeah, we you see that sometimes with how these social media sites police their own speech on their own platforms or user speech on their own platforms. Often you find... Uh, them taking down posts that are satirical because they don't understand where the butt of the joke is. Um, Lindsay, can you talk a little bit about Fire's amicus brief? What What is our interest in the case and how does it intersect in the, uh, in the co- collegiate environment? We talked a little bit about that before, but if you could put it squarely, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, sure. So Fire's amicus brief, our, our interest in the case is just what I was talking about before, that these high school cases, you know, on, on their face seem like they would only apply in the K-12 environment, but all the time are cited by college administrators to censor the speech of, of college and university students. And FIRE, as an organization that defends the free speech rights of college students and faculty, are very concerned about the idea that um, that the Supreme Court might rubber stamp administrators censoring or disciplining off-campus online speech. Um, and we see it all the time. I, I, people who listen to this podcast are probably familiar with the huge, huge uptick in cases that our individual rights defense program had over the summer and that, that we continue to have. And a lot of those cases are, on, are off-campus online speech. That those, a lot of them are social media posts, people complaining about their, their college's policies online. Uh, there are people who are, um, who are saying Black Lives Matter online. There are people who are saying, you know, that Biden sucks online. There are people on all sides of the political spectrum who we are seeing in our casework at FIRE be disciplined in various ways for posting these kinds of complaints online during their personal time. And these are both students and faculty. And unfortunately, we even see some of these high school student speech cases applied to faculty um, from time to time. So this case, even though it's not a college or university case, it just has a huge potential to affect FIRE's work. Yeah, when when we think about those cases, often it involves a faculty member posting on their personal blog, as we just saw at uh, University of San Diego Law School. 
you know, who's, he's under investigation now by the college and university. There's a risk to a job or an education in those cases. In this case, we're talking about a 14-year-old who's suspended from the junior varsity cheer team for a year. Why should the average American care about this case? At its core, this is a case about government overreach. This is a case about the government in the form of school administrators coming into your home and determining what your children are allowed to say and do in their off time. And it is it has the huge potential of being a case about government officials' ability to reach into your home and determine what you do <laughs> in your in your off time. Um, because like Frank was saying, it's always a slippery slope. You know, it starts with the 14-year-old high school cheerleader and it ends up being the, you know, the guy who's posting on his personal blog about the DMV. So it's it there's just always a slippery slope in these First Amendment cases. Frank, you have a great line in your slate piece he, uh, addressing this question. You said you can't be a little bit pregnant and you can't be a little bit constitutionally unprotected either. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, kind of going back to an earlier thread of the conversation that once students or any speaker loses a piece of First Amendment real estate, it's gone. And so if the court were to decide in Brandy Levy's case that venting on Snapchat is not protected speech because of the athletic context and this idea of discord in the locker room, there is every chance that in subsequent cases, that same type of speech outside the locker room and outside of extracurriculars is also going to be deemed to be unprotected speech. And frankly, we saw that precedent not too many years ago with the Supreme Court and drug testing. The Supreme Court took away the Fourth Amendment right of high school athletes to be free from suspicionless drug testing. And then just a few years later, they came back and said, well, this seems to be working OK. Let's just take away all students for Fourth Amendment rights to be free from suspicionless drug testing. And so there's every risk that this is going to result in, you know, and the speech that keeps me up at night the speech that I worry about seeing silence, to get back to your question about why should we care, is whistleblowing speech. If you read the briefs by the school district and by the solicitor general, each of them is inviting the court to come up with some type of a formulation that looks like speech becomes punishable if it quote unquote targets the school. That is a, a common formulation that's being offered by the school or its supporters. And notice what they're not saying, targets the school with wrongful intent or harmful intent. Targeting the school will translate in the minds of school authority figures and, to Lindsay's point, in the minds of 14-year-olds to speech about the school. And so what they're really being asked to decide in a very practical, on-the-ground way is that speech about the school will no longer be constitutionally protected, and that should chill all of us. The last high school speech case, correct me if I'm wrong, was Morris v. Frederick, right? And that was 2007. Right. We're looking at 14 years ago at this point. So to wrap this conversation up, I want to ask each of you how you think the court will come out on this case. It's a different composition than we had 14 years ago. Um, a lot of these uh, justices haven't ruled on a speech case, so this will be their first foray into it. It'll be interesting for us who do this work to see what we might be able to expect the outcome. So Frank, I'll start with you. Um, what do you think the outcome will be? 
So I'll give you the glass half empty and the glass half full. I think the glass half empty and for people who are inclined to be pessimists will say there is a reason that the court took this particular case. They've had many, many invitations to take cases involving student off-campus speech and student social media speech in the past. But in every one of those cases, the student lost. And so there is a reason that they decided to take a case in which the student won. And the temptation may be to say they took it to reverse it. They took it because they'd like to clear their dockets of what some of the justices may consider to be insignificant cases that are not federal questions. So that, that's the glass half empty. I don't actually believe that. I actually believe that particularly if you read what Justice Alito wrote in his decisive concurring opinion in the Morse case, he said two important things. First of all, he said, I'm not taking any more exceptions. The window is closed. Don't bring me any more of these student free speech exceptions. I'm done. Also, what he said is, I don't buy this in local parentis stuff for a minute. When schools are regulating the content of speech, they're not your mom. They're not your dad. They're the government. So I really think that that that's the person to watch on the court. I think Justice Alito and to a a lesser extent, Justice Gorsuch are the people to watch on this court. Justice Gorsuch has a pretty good record, including right before he joined the court, a dissenting opinion in a speech that involved overzealous punishment of student speech in which he he vigorously dissented from the 2-1 uh, majority. Uh, So uh, those are the folks that I'd be watching, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think I'm also cautiously optimistic, um, but I think that might be because I'm just a generally cautiously optimistic person (laughs) more than because that's an educated guess. I think we just don't, I'm just not sure if we know enough about this particular court and how they deal with First Amendment issues and especially First Amendment issues in the school context um, to make a call. I, I really hope you know, I pray and I hope that they do the right thing in this case and determine that, A, that schools don't have the jurisdiction to regulate off-campus online student speech, and that, B, even if they did, this speech doesn't rise to the level of a tinker disruption. Um, But I don't know. We're just going to have to see, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Frank, is there a way to lose this case that wouldn't be catastrophic. I mean, you talk in your piece repeatedly about how this is one of the most important cases uh, that the court is, has taken on addressing free speech in the education context. Is there a good way or less bad way to lose this case? For us in, in, in at FIRE, I mean, I imagine it would be a footnote that says that their decision doesn't reach the higher education context, although those in the past have been ignored as well. So, Yeah, no, I, first of all, that's the most important point. If the decision is going to be in favor of the school district and against the student, then the court has to, not in a footnote, but in the body of the case, say that this is uniquely and exclusively about the K-12 through school student relationship, which doesn't apply to the very different context of the higher ed relationship. That's point number one. But I think point number two, and, and there is a risk when you're trying to assemble your five votes in that conference room, that they will default to the narrowest possible way for the school district to win, just as they did in the Morse case. In the Morse case, they were actually invited to decide that speech loses its constitutional protection when it is, quote unquote, offensive. That was one of the arguments that the school district asked them to to, to embrace. And Chief Justice Roberts writes, no, we're not going there. We will decide it on much narrower grounds. They fashioned this 
this this exemption for pro-drug speech that that is narrowly crafted. And so there's there's a possibility, right, to uh, kind of crash land the plane safely um, by uh, uh, just losing on the basis that this is within the locker room and that there are certain decisions like who gets to be on the varsity team and not that are committed to the sound discretion of the coach. And we're just not going to disturb those decisions. But, you know, and if I were trying to write that opinion for the school district in the narrowest way, I would say there's a bright line when school punitive authority is used like a suspension or an expulsion from school. We're actually enjoying the benefit of your state guaranteed public education where the First Amendment is going to kick in. So I suppose there's a way to write it in the narrowest possible way that's just about the athletic context and and class half empty. That may be where we land. Well, we'll see. This podcast uh, is coming out the week before the arguments and we expect the decision. I I hope, um, well, we can expect it before the end of the term, which would be uh, late June, early July. Lindsey, Frank, I appreciate you both coming on the show, and I hope to have you both on again. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Nico. That was Breckner Center's Frank Lamonti and Fires Lindsey Rank. The case is Mahanoy Area School District versus BL, and it's set to be argued in front of the Supreme Court on April 28th with an opinion expected, as I mentioned, this summer. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at sotospeakatthefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. They help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.